There are several young men who are walking around with some yellow sheets of paper. Uh, if you're willing, I'd ask that you take one of those. Uh, that's for you, uh, a handout for this lesson like I normally do. But there's something at the end of that that I want you to take home with you and hopefully a little activity uh, that I want you to do on your own time uh, as you have, have opportunity. So if you're willing to take one of those, there's some young men who are going around and handing those out. If not, that's okay, uh, but uh, I ask you to do that. Uh, and if you have your Bible with you, I want you to take it out, please, and turn to Psalm 101, the 101st Psalm, Psalm 101. And we'll read that here in just a moment. Psalm 101. Thank you for being here tonight. A special thanks to our visitors for being here this evening. And I'm hopeful that the lesson tonight will be extremely practical, helpful to us in our daily walk as we strive to be who God has called us to be. So as those young men are handing out the final ones of those handouts, uh, the NBA playoffs are going on right now. Uh, and no doubt, if you've watched any of those playoffs, you've seen some players that have a look like this on their face when the ref blows the whistle and puts his hand up like this. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. But what's interesting about this particular interaction, I, I didn't see this live. I actually saw this uh, after the fact because a lot of people were posting about it online. This is a player by the name of Cam Payne, Cameron Payne. And after the ref called this foul on him, he had this look of utter disbelief on his face. And you can read his lips in the video clip of this. He looks at the referee and he says to him, I promise I didn't foul him. And then he says, on my mama. On my mama, I promise I didn't foul him. I don't know about you, but if I was the ref, I might say, okay, never mind, wasn't a foul, right? Uh, I mean, we, we in our society, we think about when someone really, really, really wants to get across that they're telling the truth, that this is right, uh, we take some kind of oath on somebody's life, or we swear to God, or in campaign's case, I swear on my mama, I didn't do it. And that makes me want to ask a question uh, in regard to this idea of swearing or promising or taking an oath. Can Christians swear an oath to the Lord today? Is that something that we can do as Christians? You know, some draw a sharp distinction between oaths and vows, and there probably is a slight difference between the two, but for our purposes this evening, we're going we're gonna to use those interchangeably, oaths, vows, promises, whatever you want to call it. Can a Christian swear, make a promise, make a vow to the Lord? Well, I want you to mark your spot in Psalm 101. That's where I want us to get to this morning. But I want you to turn first to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And this is Jesus as he's addressing a number of different issues that the Jews had in regard to the outward nature, the physical nature, the superficial nature of what they had made the Jewish religion into. And in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, 
nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Well, that settles it, right? Well, it does if we understand what Jesus is saying here in its proper context. What had happened between when these laws were recorded and this concept, it's a good concept of performing your oath to the Lord, what had happened in first century Judaism is that the scribes and the Pharisees had taken passages from the Old Testament that were intended to emphasize the need for truth and reliability and fulfilling your oaths, and they twisted those passages to, stay, to say instead, you can lie all you want to. As long as you don't make an oath by certain things, you can say you're going to do something, you can say yes, you can say no, and it really doesn't mean anything until, until you swear an oath, then you're actually committed to fulfill that. Uh, if we turn over to Matthew chapter 23, I think we see that same idea expanded upon just a little bit. Notice in verse 16 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater? The gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And, they would also say, whoever swears by the altar, eh, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater? The gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all the things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now, we're given this little picture, right, into what was happening at that time and they apparently had this like ranking system. And if you swear by this, you've really, really, really got to do it. But if you just say you're going to do it, or you swear by something lesser, well, then it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I think we can see that's ridiculous, right? And when you get right down to it, they, they didn't want to be obligated to do what it is they said they were going to do. And that was the problem. And they thought if they had enough degrees of separation from God himself when they made a vow, they didn't have to perform it. And so what Jesus does is he throws out their entire little made-up system. Isn't that what Jesus does so often? He takes this and says, all this is wrong, let's just throw it out. Saying in essence that there is nothing by which you can swear that is not ultimately tied to God. Whether you're swearing by the temple or by your mama, you're swearing to God. And so Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, as kingdom citizens, yes or no obligates us as much as the severest oath. Now that's what Jesus was dealing with, and that was Jesus' point. When we say we're going to do something as Christians, we need to do it. Amen? Amen. That's who we are. Uh, now, Having said all that, I think it's likely that we possibly can swear by the Lord, but that's another sermon for another time. Instead, I want us to get this point clearly, 
because it sets us up for what we're going to look at in Psalm 101. Men and women of integrity, Christians, fulfill the things to which they commit themselves. And that has some applications, doesn't it? Maybe number one, let's be really, really careful about the things to which we commit ourselves. If we commit ourselves to it, let's be careful to make sure that we're going to fulfill it. Let's be clear with people when we make those commitments, uh, whether or not this is something we know we're going to fulfill or something that we just hope that we are possibly going to be able to fulfill. And I am absolutely, preachers say they preach it themselves, I'm absolutely preaching it myself when I say that. Uh, because I'm a people pleaser, and sometimes I make commitments that I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to, f- to fulfill. Jesus says, you say yes, needs to be yes. You say no, needs to be no. Fulfill the things that you say you're going to do. So we need to be very, very careful about those things. But secondly, and this is really the application I want us to think about tonight, when we do commit ourselves to something, As a Christian, that is some really, really great motivation to do that thing. And sometimes what we need to do is make a commitment so that we'll actually follow through and do what it is we are called to do. And I am struck how David, in Psalm 101, if you want to turn back there now, and that's where we're going to be spending basically the rest of our lesson I am struck with how David in Psalm 101, even though he's under the old law, he doesn't swear by the temple or the gold in the temple. Well, the temple doesn't exist at this time, but the tabernacle or the gold in the tabernacle. He doesn't swear by the altar or the things on the altar. He doesn't even swear by God specifically or explicitly. He just makes some commitments. And then he expects himself to fulfill those commitments. So let's read these verses together and then we'll look at what those commitments are a little bit more closely. As we read, I want you to notice one phrase with me. I will, I will, David says. I will, verse 1, sing of the mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Maybe your translation says nothing worthless before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I might cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Nine times in eight verses in the New King James Version, David says, I will, as he makes these commitments. And, and it doesn't even include the times where he talks about he shall or my eyes shall or those other expressions of making commitment as well. And many point out when you study this psalm that these statements are in the context of a king concerning his kingdom. And that's true. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But I think there is something much 
simpler and more fundamental taking place. It is, it is not just the plight of a king with whom we have nothing in common found in these verses. Otherwise, they would not be preserved for us. Instead, these verses also contain the commitments of a simple man of God. This is a man determined to do what's right. And that's what that kind of commitment looks like. And we, as men and women determined to do what right, should emulate the commitment that he makes. I will, David says, and so should we. This is a promise of faithfulness to the Lord in a number of different areas, and I want us to consider those areas tonight. May I suggest that David makes five general commitments or promises in Psalm 101. And the first question about those promises that I would ask you is, to whom is he making this commitment? I will, he says. I will, well, to himself, no doubt. But also notice what he says in verse 1 and 2. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. And then in verse 2, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? This is a psalm that is addressed to God. And in that sense, these are commitments to the Lord. And my second question, what did he do with these commitments? At the very least, we know that he wrote them down. He wrote them down right here in this psalm, right? And I think there's something really powerful about that. Writing down these commitments, keeping them before our eyes, and saying, this is what I'm going to do. So five commitments to the Lord that every one of us can make. These are basics in some ways, some non-negotiables if we want to be followers of God. Five fundamental things to which we should be committed as we seek to please God. Whether we're a king or a pauper or somewhere in between, These things should ring true in our lives. So as we look at what David says he will do, ask yourself, am I willing to make the same commitment? Number one, five commitments made by David. Number one, he says, I will worship God. How simple and profound that commitment is. And notice it isn't a commitment just to show up at the place of worship whenever the doors are open Instead, he is committing that he is going to be an active participant in worship to God. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. In David's mind, and thus it should be in the mind of every Christian, there is no excuse to simply show up and let everybody else worship around us. We, we should be committed to worship to the best of our abilities. I will sing to God. And I think worship is a really great place to start in regard to our commitments because putting God in His proper place allows for everything else that might follow after that. He is deserving of worship and praise because He is both merciful and just. And that's what He sang sang of, right? I'm not just singing of mercy and, and justice in general. I'm singing of God's mercy, and I'm singing of God's justice. So, uh, just nod your head a little bit if you agree. Can you, can you make that simple commitment? I will worship God. I can. I will sing praises to Him. 
And so now we're well on our way. That's how easy this is. Well, that's how simple this is. But when we make that commitment, what does that mean? It means we've got to do it. I will worship God. Secondly, I summarize verse 2 in this way. I will invite God to dwell in my house and direct me. Now, we've read it out of the New King James Version. I want you to see verse 2 in the English Standard Version. Here's what it says. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house, David says. My house, David says. Uh, some people say, well, his house was the house of the king, the administrative branch of the government. And I suppose that's true, but my house is not the administrative branch of any government, and yet it is no less important to God that I am walking with integrity of heart within my house. And whether my house is a house of one or two or four or twelve or more, God needs to be the one who directs and dwells within that house. Psalm 127 and verse 1, uh, this is a psalm that I've used in marriage counseling for years as a new house, a new home is, is begun. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I need to invite God into my house. I need to make a commitment that God is going to dwell there amongst my family. As husbands and wives, as parents and children, God should be the one who is in our house, directing what that house, what that home looks like. And homes break down due to all sorts of factors, outward pressures, inward weaknesses. But following the directions of God, uh, that's the solution to those issues. He is the one who will direct our attitudes and our activities and our direction. Am I willing to make that commitment? God is the one who's going to dwell in my house and direct me in how that house should run. Uh, well, that requires something of me if I make that commitment, right? I then must study and see how. How does God set up a home? How does God build a house? What should that look like in my home and in my family? Then in verses 3 and 4, I'd summarize it this way. I will avoid temptation and remain faithful. Uh, read again there in verse 3. He says, I will set nothing wicked, New King James, before my eyes. Uh, it's possible that word is actually worthless. Uh, it's a little bit unsure, the, the translation of that word. But wicked or worthless, wouldn't either one of those apply? I mean, can I make that commitment to either one of those things? And how often do the worthless things lead to the wicked things, the sinful things? Uh, there's a great scripture that says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. No, that's not a scripture, right? That's, that's a proverb. People put that out there. But there is a scripture that's somewhat close. Proverbs 16 and verse 27, a worthless man plots evil. Why does he have time to plot evil? Because he's worthless. And in the book of Proverbs, this is the sluggard, the fool, the person who's not about the business he ought to be about. And so because of that, he has all this time to devise evil things and plot evil things. And so may I suggest that the idle mind is as much the devil's workshop as the idle hand. It allows us to plot evil things within our mind when our mind is filled with worthlessness and wickedness. 
And don't misunderstand me. We all watch silly things and consider silly things, and there's an innocence to that. Nothing wrong with that. But if all we fill our mind with are worthless things to the exclusion of spiritual things, it's easy for wickedness to sneak in. How easy is it for wicked things to be before our eyes today? But notice, David doesn't say, I'm never going to look at a wicked thing again. What does he say? Look there in the verse. He commits himself to a couple of things. He commits himself, I will set nothing wicked there, and when something appears there, I'm going to turn away from that. And I think those are the commitments that we need to make as well. I'm not going to set anything wicked before my eyes. I won't do it. I'm not going to intentionally place it there. If I know something is going to get through into my mind and heart, why would I do that to myself? And we have to be intentional about that if we make that kind of commitment, right? Um, That means that I might have to look at the rating of a movie ahead of time to see what's in this thing so that I don't set that before me. But the reality is, even if we're super careful, there are going to be times where it is unintentionally set before me. Well, I didn't intend to do it, but maybe others intended to do it. What am I going to do in that moment? Well, I should make a commitment to turn away from that immediately when something wicked is placed before my eyes. And, and we think about um, you know, the same old, same old sort of applications. Let me make one that's maybe a little different because... Well, it's personal to me, and this is something that I've had to do. Um, I've been, for most of my life, one of those people, when I start a book, got to finish a book, right? And when it comes to the contents of books, it's almost like it doesn't count, you know? It's not on a screen. I'm not seeing that, and so it's just something that I'm seeing in my own mind, right? Um, and, and I do pretty well about skipping over things. So I say, oh, that's not very good. I should do that. I did something... Uh, um, a few months ago that, that I really have not done very many times, I quit reading a book in the middle of the book because I said, you know, maybe it's maturity, I hope it is. I finally just said, Reagan, what are you doing? This is awful. Why are you, why are you reading this? You got, you got 200 more pages of this nonsense. Why in the world? Well, I know why, because I want to finish it. And so it's on my shelf Turned around backwards, and just in case somebody else comes into the house and knows what's in this horrible book, right? Turned around backwards, but it's still on the shelf. So here's the commitment I'm going to make to all of y'all. I'm going to go home and get rid of that book, right? Because I need to make a commitment when something wicked comes before my eyes. I'm going to turn away from it. And I'm not going to leave it hanging out there in order to come back to later. And when you remove the wicked things... And when you remove the worthless things, what are you left with? Well, maybe uh, whatever things are true and whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, and whatever things are pure and whatever things are lovely and whatever things are of good report. Philippians 4 and verse 8 says, If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And the only way we can fill our mind, that's what meditation is uh, in a biblical sense. It's not emptying our mind like in Eastern religions. In the Bible, it is filling our mind with God and the things of God. And the only way I can meditate on these things, maybe your translation, I think it's Old King James says, dwell on these things. The only way I can invite these things to live in my mind and heart 
is if I get rid of the other things that might crowd those good things out. And this is one of the big ways that we avoid temptation, by guarding our minds and our hearts and our spirit, by keeping the pure things in and the impure things out. We need to make commitments like this, but it's uncomfortable to make the commitment, I will avoid temptation, I will remain faithful. Should we feel uncomfortable with that? Should we feel uncomfortable making the commitment, I will never sin again? Well, I I don't know about that. I, I don't know that I can fulfill that commitment. But what about this? I will never commit that sin again. Can we make that commitment? Uh, I'll give you some good examples and then, well, I'm not even going to get super specific. I know y'all like when I confess, but there are limits on these things, right? I have made the commitment before, I will never say that word again. And I've not said that word again. I have made the commitment before, I will never react to someone in that way again. And to this point in time, I've not reacted to someone in that exact way again. Now, him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It could happen. But I made a commitment to myself and to the Lord, that's wrong, I knew it was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, I'm not going to do it again. And there are things in my life that I haven't, and I won't. Brethren, and yet the other side of the coin is, there have been other times in my life where I've said, I'm not going to commit that sin again, never again. And in that moment, I meant that with every fiber of my being. And somehow, some way, months later, I commit the same sin again. I'm like, you idiot. You, you knew better than that. That can be frustrating. That can be discouraging. But the solution is not to quit making the commitment. The solution is to ask for forgiveness, confess the sin, and get up and try again. One of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 24 and verse 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Keep getting back up. Keep making that commitment and meaning it, and one day you're going to look around and you realize that you've not committed that sin in a long, long time, and, and you haven't even realized it. We should make that commitment that I'm going to do everything in my power to avoid that temptation. I'm going to have a heart that is fully and unyieldingly devoted to doing what's right. I want to do what's right, and I'm going to do everything in my power to do what's right. You know, David makes these commitments here, and we're going to talk about that more here in a second. But what, what set David apart? What made David so special? Was it that he was sinless? Was it that he never committed big sins? Hardly. Uh, keeping your spot in Psalm 101, look in Acts 13, 22. There are several places we could turn to make this point, but I like the way it's put in Acts 13 and verse 22. Paul's preaching a sermon. He's going through the history of Israel. He gets to David, and this is what he says in verse 22. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, so when God had removed Saul, God raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. 
what made David so special, who will do all my will. What made David special was that his heart was set on doing God's heart. His will was set on doing God's will. And he didn't do that sometimes. He was weak and sinful. But I think that was always his intention. And that's why he made commitments like this. I can do that. Can't you? I think we all can. Um, Number four. uh, If we go back to Psalm 101... Um, verse 5, he says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Uh, I would summarize that this way. I will not put up with ungodly people in my life. Um, specifically, two kinds of people that David talks about here. Uh, I struggled with the first one, how to describe this person who secretly slanders his neighbor. What does that look like? I, I would put it this way. Number one specific kind of person, the, insti- the instigator of drama. I'm not going to put up with that kind of person who is a gossip, who causes drama, who talks about people behind their back. And David says, him I will destroy. So we should imitate David here, just destroy that person. Well, no. I think we're getting into now the kingdom mindset with David. Don't look so disappointed. That's not the way the Christian works, right? We're getting into that kingdom mindset now. David had the authority in his kingdom. If you perjure yourself, there's some consequences to that. But what about in our lives? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not authorized by God to destroy that person, first of all. Couldn't do that anyway in all likelihood. But what I can do, what I can do is destroy that kind of behavior in my life. And that makes for some very uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable conversations, but we need to be able to step up and do that. Now, I'll admit, when we talk about instigators of drama, preachers can be bad about this. I had a preacher um, talk to me one time, and he was talking about another preacher. He did not know that I was close with this other preacher, pretty intimately involved with the situation that he's talking about. He goes on for a little while, and finally I just said, let me stop you right there. That's not true. He's like, well, I've got it on very good authority. I said, I don't care whose authority you have it on. I know personally that that is not true. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this brother up. I'm going to tell him that you talked to me. I'm going to give him your number. I'm going to have him call you unless you want to call him first. Y'all need to figure this out and work this out. I'm not going to be a part of it. And you might say, oh, wow, man, was that guy your enemy for life? I I kid you not, we have been friends since that day. But he's never done anything like that again. Because like David, we need to make a commitment. I'm not going to put up with that kind of behavior in my life. I don't need that in my life. And sometimes at work, at school, even in our own families, there are people like this, and, and it is not our job to destroy them. But it is our job to say, I'm not going to be party to that kind of behavior. And to a certain degree, that is um, tempered, might be the, the right word with the next one, the haughty and the proud. Those who have a high opinion of themselves. I'm not going to put up with that kind of behavior either. Uh, that sounds a lot like uh, Proverbs 6, maybe, verses 6 through 19. Um, look over there for just a moment. Proverbs chapter 6.
These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that divided with, excuse me, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who spreads lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Uh, David is basically parroting what the Lord says here. I'm not going to put up with those kinds of things in my life. And if you are around those kinds of people, my admonition would be this. Be very careful about who is influencing whom. David wasn't going to put up with it, and we shouldn't put up with it either. Either, uh, And that's tempered again by, by what comes next. I'm not going to put up with these kind of people in my life, but at the same time, verses 6 through 8, I will do my part to stop evil around me. Read those verses with me again. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, or blameless way is the idea, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. There will be people like that out there, but not in my house, not in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, we are not kings like David with that kind of power. I've got a good friend. Um, he talks about being king for a day. Oh, the things that I would accomplish if I were king for a day. Well, we're not. None of us are. But within our realm of influence, as much as depends on me, as much as is within my control, I need to do my part to stop evil around me. To be a light to the world and the salt of the earth, making this world in which we all live a less evil place because of my presence in it. Five really strong, really great commitments. And as we bring our lesson to a close this morning, <laughs> this evening, did David do that? We don't know when this psalm was written. We know it's a psalm of David. We don't know when it was written. But it's amazing to me how many of the commitments that David makes here are broken in the events surrounding his sin with Bathsheba. There is no worship taking place in those chapters. I mean, David is a man of worship. That's what he's known for. He wrote all these psalms. Not all of them, but almost all of them, right? Hundreds of psalms David wrote. And yet in those chapters where those sins are taking place, there's no mention of David worshiping. Instead of God being invited into his house, he invites a woman who is not his wife into his house to commit sin. He set something wicked before his eyes on that rooftop. At the very least, he did not look away when it was put before his eyes. He did not follow God's direction. He followed the desires of his own flesh. He was one who fell away from the way of the Lord because of a bad heart. He secretly slandered and ultimately murdered Uriah. And it was pride that led him there. He was the king and the king was above the law, even the law of God. He could do what he wanted to do. In these chapters, David was full of deceit and lies to the people, to Uriah, 
And he brought reproach on this land that in these verses he swears to protect and keep holy and clean. He brings reproach on that land and the city of the Lord because of his sin. We don't know when these verses were written, but, but I like to think, I hope, that David wrote Psalm 101 after, after all of those sins were committed. And if that's the case, then David really, with these five things, is going down the list of the things that he's done wrong and saying, I can't, I can't do a thing about the things I've done in the past, but I can fully and totally commit to myself and to God that I'm not going to make those same mistakes in the future. I will do these things. But whenever David wrote this, it doesn't change the fact that this kind of life-changing commitment is available to you. It's available to you tonight. And so if you have that handout uh, handy, I want you to just look at it. We don't have time to actually do this ourselves. But we have five commitments made by David. If you had to make five commitments like this, five fundamental commitments to make your life more what it ought to be, what five things would you commit to? And my question is, are you willing to write those things down? You don't have to show them to me or to anybody else. David, on the other hand, wrote a psalm that everybody got to read, including us. But are you willing to write those things down before God? Maybe even make those commitments to others. Are you willing to make those statements to and before God? How about, like David, we all start with five? Five commitments that I will make to God for my spiritual life. And just see how your life might change for the better if you're willing to make that kind of commitment. Well, if you're not yet a Christian this evening, um, we can commit all we want to, but the reality is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is only because of Christ's sacrifice that our attempts... Our willingness to try means something before God. It means something because of what Christ has done in making forgiveness, true forgiveness, available to us by His sacrifice. And if you're here this evening and you need to commit your life to Christ, that is the best commitment that you can make. Won't you come this evening putting Christ on in baptism that you might rise to walk in newness of life. And we encourage you to do so as together we stand and as we sing.